Welcome to the latest S&B Quarter Day podcast. I'm Helen Wedden and I'm joined today by my colleague Marcus Klemper, who is going to take us through today's topic. Thanks, Helen, and good morning. Uh, yes, in this mini-series, we'll be looking at what happens when a tenant might be looking to vacate its premises. So we're going to look at some questions that were often asked by our clients. We'll also look at the strategic issues that might arise and offer our listeners a few practical tips too. But this is quite a broad topic and can cover a lot of issues. So we're going to break it down into three parts. So in part one, which we're going to cover today, we'll look at what happens when the tenant unexpectedly leaves. And then in part two, we'll consider tenant break options. And in part three, we're going to look at forfeiture and the impact of tenant insolvency. Sounds great, Marcus. Um, The issue of tenants leaving is certainly coming across our desks a lot at the moment with the current economic climate as it is. So tenants, especially in retail or office sectors, have been looking to rationalise their occupation, whether to reduce overheads generally or due to other strategic business reasons, meaning they're reducing their footprint in certain locations. We're seeing lots of examples of tenants leaving because they've served notice to vacate or they simply leave for one reason or another. One of the most common scenarios clients approach us with is when their tenant either just sends back the keys or turns up one day and hands over the keys. What should landlords do if that happens? Yes, uh, well, in that situation, the landlord's going to have to think very carefully before acting. Um, Firstly, was this expected or unexpected? Have any discussions taken place with the tenant leading up to that point, either between the principals or their agents? Often a tenant leaving is not going to be a complete surprise because it's likely the tenant's already been defaulting on its rent and may even have gone to ground despite the landlord's best efforts to engage with it. So if the keys do land on the landlord's doormat or handed over to its managing agent, a landlord's next thought is going to be, does he want the property back or not? If not, by accepting the keys and therefore it's acting in a manner which is inconsistent with the lease continuing, is likely to amount to what's called a surrender by operation of law. So to avoid that risk, the landlord should act quickly. It should return the keys, if that's possible, of course, or instruct its agents to refuse to accept them. Of course, if that's not practically possible and the keys do end up back in the landlord's hands, we'd always advise writing to the tenant stating that the keys are being held to their order and are available for collection at any time. And for the avoidance of doubt, it's not accepting a surrender. At the same time, the landlord might also want to say it's holding the keys for health and safety and security reasons. That's to allow it the opportunity, if it becomes necessary at any point in the future, to enter and inspect the premises for those purposes. Doing that is going to help preserve the lease and avoid unintentionally accepting an early surrender. It's also going to help having a paper trail if for any reason the tenant tries to argue that it's no longer liable under the lease. Or in fact, if any local authority rating office comes along suggesting that the landlord has taken back control and therefore is liable for ongoing business rates. Yes, good tip. Um, A local authority may be keen on a solvent landlord rather than a tenant who's disappeared to get those rates paid. So it might also be worth a quick check with company's house or running an insolvency search to see if anything's happened to the tenant or any change in contact details, assuming these have been updated. Of course, if the landlord does want the property back, what then? Well, that's fine, but it's still worth being cautious. Accepting a surrender will automatically discharge the tenant from future liability for rent. 
along with any existing guarantors or any former tenants who may otherwise have remained on the hook. That could be usually under a, what's called an authorised guarantee agreement, which rented into on assignments of leases. Also, the tenant's liabilities for other costs, such as business rates, utilities, service charges, etc., all immediately end too. So the landlord should be certain it wants that, as it could leave a large hole in its account. That's why if the landlord doesn't want to take the property back early, it should take meter readings and, if necessary, inform utility providers that the tenant remains responsible for the property. That's to avoid the risk of utility providers issuing debt proceedings against the landlord in error. Yes, that can cause a real headache. What about if rent is still being paid, but it's starting to come from a different entity? When cash flow is a, a huge concern, it must be tempting to accept it and carry on as normal. But do you think the landlord can or should bank it? In that situation, a landlord should start by asking the question about who's in actual occupation. Is someone else trading from the premises other than the tenant? Do we know if the occupier has been allowed in and if so, on what basis? A landlord might be very tempted to think it's fine and carry on as if nothing's happened, often for weeks, months or much longer. Whilst in the short term, accepting the money might sound like a very pragmatic thing to do, it can cause lots of problems later on, especially if the landlord later wants to enforce its rights and take issue with the occupation. So before taking any steps, it'll be worth checking the alienation covenants in the lease. You know, what does it say about sharing or parting with occupation of the premises? Many leases allow group companies to share occupation, and if it does, that might not be a big problem, although the relationship between the occupier and the tenant should be clarified and always kept under close scrutiny. If not, then accepting rent in knowledge of a potential breach of the lease will waive the landlord's right to enforce it, so it's important to take stock and work out what's going on. If you're unsure, the best approach is to return the money and refuse to accept rent from anyone other than the tenant if necessary, at the same time preserving a right to take action for any breach. Alternatively, if a landlord is willing to get comfortable with accepting the rent on behalf of the tenant, it must make it crystal clear to the third party payer that it's accepting the money as agent and that by accepting money in that way, there is no intention to create a landlord and tenant relationship. And if that can be confirmed in writing by the parties, so much the better, but at the least all rent demands should continue to be addressed to the tenant. That's good advice, especially if the landlord is likely in the future to want to redevelop the property. And as part of that, it will want to get back vacant possession. And accepting rent from an occupier other than a tenant could mean that party becomes a protected tenant under the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954. So if it asserts those rights, that could certainly scupper any future plans, or at least make it much more difficult and expensive to get the premises back empty. Speaking of protected tenants, we often get asked that if a tenant has had a protected lease, can it just leave the premises or does it first need to serve notice under the Act to terminate its tenancy? Well, it depends. If the lease is protected by the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954, the tenant does not need to serve notice if the lease's contractual expiry date has not yet passed. It just needs to ensure that it no longer occupies for business purposes and the lease will then automatically end on the contractual expiry date. There's nothing the landlord can do about that, even if it wanted to. Similarly, if the tenant wants certainty that the lease will end on the contractual expiry date, it can simply give at least three months notice under what's called the A Section 27 notice, and the lease will end on that date, irrespective of whether it leaves on time. 
But if the situation is different if contractual expiry has already passed and the tenant is what's called holding over under the Act. In that scenario, the lease won't end simply by the tenant vacating. And instead, they've got to give the landlord at least three months notice in writing to terminate the lease pursuant to a Section 27 notice. That can often catch tenants unaware who thought they simply could leave after contractual expiry and bring their lease to an end. That's not the case. So as long as the landlord hasn't accepted the keys or otherwise acted in a way which is inconsistent with the continuation of the lease, the lease will continue to run until the notice is served under the Act. Thanks, Marcus. And that's a good warning to uh, businesses occupying with protected leases, especially if they're looking to sign up to a new lease elsewhere and they find out later that they're still on the hook for rent under their old lease. Paying double rent for three months could be a costly mistake. Well, thanks, Marcus, for your thoughts on this topic. And while that's all we have time for in this podcast, in part two, we will be taking a brief look at tenant exits again, but this time with a focus in relation to break options. So until then, thank you for joining us today. And if you have any questions about what we've discussed, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Thank you.